0: Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grand Rounds, um, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. I know many of you are traveling, getting ready to get together uh, in a different year from last year. Uh, Last year was complicated because of COVID. We're still obviously uh, in in the midst of COVID, although a much better place because of vaccines here in Connecticut. So I hope you can uh, get together with your families in a safe way. Uh, I emphasize safety of course, uh, for all of you, uh, perhaps smaller gatherings than the large gatherings that we were used to in the past, but uh, also a time to say thank you. Uh, thank you to uh, to each other, thank you for, for being here, for being alive, frankly, uh, you know, after this horrific pandemic. Uh, I personally wanna thank all of you for everything that you have done, uh, the team members at Connecticut Children's, uh, our, our, our medical staff uh, uh, through Connecticut Children's, our faculty, uh, and certainly this wonderful group of people that are around here in, this, in the studio that put these grand round series together for you every day, including the the Experts and many other CME events. Uh, I am enormously grateful with, with all of them because of the way they do it in an exemplary uh, fashion. And uh, so I am so appreciative of that. Uh, today, uh, we're, we're going to have a fantastic Grand Rounds by one of our top faculty, Dr. Demerci. Uh, Dr. Jermaine Lee will introduce him in a, in a second. I do want to want to recognize one of our faculty that was uh, given an award last week. Uh, that was Dr. Anand Sekaran, who's head of our Pediatric Hospital Medicine Division, also Associate Chair of Clinical Affairs. And Anand was one of the healthcare heroes this year, uh, along with Will Lee, also from Connecticut Children's. beautiful event last Thursday where he was recognized for the work that uh, he and his team have done throughout the pandemic uh, during the the inpatient units uh, and everything else that Anand has done so Anand congratulations to you absolutely well deserved I'm very proud of what you do and how you represent all of our faculty Uh, so again I want to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving and I'm going to pass it on to our outstanding division chief uh, and uh, who sent mice into space about a couple years ago and uh, Emily Main Lee, uh, p- uh, please uh, go ahead and introduce Dr. Demerci-Emily.
1: Uh, Thank you, and um, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. So um, it is really, truly my pleasure to introduce Dr. Jem Demerci. Uh, I don't know where to begin except to say that Jem is an endocrinologist extraordinaire, especially in type 1 diabetes. He holds the Chase Family Endowed Chair in Juvenile Diabetes, which is really a great honor. Uh, As you all know, he's the medical director of the Division of Endocrinology and Diabetes here at Connecticut Children's. But specifically, almost from the day he got here, he runs the diabetes program. And um, really it, it, has been a very long journey, but he's done such an incredible job, it's impossible to express. And in fact, I know it's almost to the day that it marks 12 years since he's been here because there was an announcement on Doximity a couple days ago that I saw. But anyway, Jem is known for miles around for his expertise in diabetes. Everyone asks some questions about it from all around the country, the state, within our division. But what I think is most striking about Jem is that he's also known by everyone for his passion for caring for children. And perhaps that means even more to me. He lives and he breathes type 1 diabetes to make care better for not only the children and young adults, but also to make the lives of the families better. He started the first camp in fact for children with diabetes in Connecticut and he he runs a really incredible program with a team of dedicated providers. They all meet together to run what he started and is known as the diabetes mellitus care coordination clinic and this was his brainchild that was started about nine years ago. And it's a remarkable program because what it does is it focuses on the children and young adults of highest acuity and really those who are at greatest risk for morbidities. And the way I look at these patients is that they really are the most vulnerable. The ones who at many institutions are left at the wayside, but not here. Um, And I guess what I wanna say is that Jem really gives his best every day to all of his patients, every single one of them into all of the families. And so I think what I'll do just because it's before Thanksgiving is just give him thanks because not only does he give his best to all of his patients, to all the families, but he gives his very best to the division, to every single one of us. And every day that he comes to work, he really does give his absolute best to Connecticut Children's. And he makes our division so proud. So I thank you, Jim. Jim, sorry. I thank you, Jim, from the bottom of my heart for everything you've done for all the children, families, for our division, and for Connecticut Children's. And it's really a great honor to introduce my colleague, Dr. Jim Demerci.
2: Emily, thank you for that kind introduction. Good morning, all it's my pleasure to be here delivering today's grand rounds, which will take you to a historic journey. Of the past hundred years since the discovery of the magical extract called insulin. I have nothing to disclose other than my passion to work with patients and families with diabetes. The learning objectives are listed here and disclosed in the EEDS. Although we will focus on the past century, our story begins more than 3,000 years ago. Diabetes is one of the oldest and well-described illnesses in the medical literature. Egyptian writings from 1500 BC describe patients exactly one would report signs and symptoms of diabetes today. Furthermore, Indian medical literature depicts by Susrata a term called medhu meha. He basically uh, uh, described patients with diabetes in 520 BC by the term honey urine. He trained ants to test urine for its sweetness. Apollonius introduced the word diabetes into the medical literature, which meant siphoning, siphoning out urine. And it was an observatory description. In the 17th century, mellitus, which means honey or sugar, added to complete the description, to differentiate other siphoning conditions like diabetes insipidus. Many healers, physicians, scientists offered treatment solutions mostly by dietary alteration. In the beginning of 20th century, Dr. Frederick Allen and Dr. Elliot Jocelyn wrote books on carbohydrate-restricted diets by simply observing that patients were losing sugar in their urine and carbohydrate restriction kept them alive. This was essentially a starvation diet, and Dr. Ellen and others opened institutions to starve people. And in fact, some patients lived for years. In 1869, a German medical student, Paul Langerhans, using light microscope, observed cluster of cells within the pancreatic tissue that looked different. He made beautiful illustrations as part of the medical school graduation thesis. He also described the skin fibroblasts, by the way. Later, these clusters named with his name as Islets of Langerhans. The connection of diabetes and pancreas was well known in 1800s. Polish-German physiologist Oskar Minkowski and the physician Joseph von Mering showed that if the pancreas was removed from a dog, the animal developed diabetes. But if you ligated the pancreatic duct, the duct developed minor digestive problems, but not the diabetes. The face of diabetes was depicted by cachectic children losing weight and hope. Dr. Banting, a Canadian army surgeon, returned from World War I and opened a practice in Toronto. He did not get any patients the first month. As a matter of fact, a soldier walked in for a prescription of alcohol since it was the prohibition and you needed a medical prescription to get alcohol. He wanted to be useful. He needed money. He volunteered to teach some lectures at the new medical school in western ontario he was assigned to the pancreas a journal article arrived to his desk on october 30 1920. he read the article by moses barron who described that if individuals had severe inflammation of their pancreas or if you induce the inflammation in a laboratory animal most of the pancreas would wither away and leave only a small tissue that was highly enriched with islets of Langerhans. Banting fell asleep, reading the article, woke up early mornings of October 31st. He changed the date from 30 to 31st in his diary. And he wrote this note, diabetes, ligate pancreatic ducts of dogs, keep dogs alive till acini degenerate, leaving islets. Day eight, isolate the internal secretions and relieve glycosuria. He took this idea to the head of physiology department, at University of Toronto J J R Macleod he was a very established physician he wrote books about diabetes and glucose metabolism by then he listened to him and the idea he knew was tried before dr banting didn't know and failed multiple times but he needed to spend the the summer in scotland and he needed somebody to keep his lab busy so he offered him a lab space he also put dr Collip, one of his biochemists in charge to to look around look behind them this was the laboratory that dr Benting was assigned in addition to the laboratory he was given a medical student charles best they spent the summer of 1921 in the heat of Toronto, ligating the pancreatic ducts of many dogs and extracting the internal secretion, late July, they had evidence that they may have something. They tested the extract on dog number 33, Marjorie. Marjorie was very dear to Dr. Banting's heart Dr. Banting cried after every dog passed away. And Marjorie survived for 55 days on this extract after after her pancreas being removed. Marjorie's contribution to science inspired a children's book with beautiful illustrations. Interestingly, same year, a Romanian Physiologist Nicholas Polescu reported the discovery of a substance called pancrein in pancreatic extracts from dogs. He published that diabetic dogs given this extract experienced a temporary decrease in blood glucose, but he didn't take it any further. On December 30th, Benting, best Collip and McLeod, attended an annual conference of American Physiology Society in New Haven, Connecticut. They delivered an address, and Banting himself delivered the address. The title of the address was beneficial influences of certain pancreatic extracts on pancreatic diabetes. They were ready to take this to the patients the opportunity came on january 23rd 1922 thomas leonard thompson was 14 was 14 years old boy who was drifting in and out of coma in diabetic ketoacidosis he was injected with this extract and the initial injection had no response and they reluctantly injected the second dose, and he started to recover. He lived 13 more years on this extract and died of pneumonia in 1936 at age 26. The insulin was discovered. As you can see on this bottle and and box of insulin, it carried the, the knot, antitoxin laboratories of university of toronto it carried that label so the this was a big news it read toronto doctors on track of diabetes cure this wasn't a cure but it certainly felt like it because the world needed world needed a treatment for diabetes so the face of diabetes started to change. People who had been hanging on of life, of being starved could actually eat again and gain weight. There were many unique stories carried this significant sentiment. Elizabeth Hughes was one of them, not only because she was the daughter of Charles Evans Hughes, Secretary of State And later supreme court justice but elizabeth developed diabetes in 1918 when she was 11 years old she survived almost four years on dr ellen's starvation diet until she's treated by dr benton in august of 1922 when she weighed 45 pounds she lived a very fulfilling life up until age 73, passed away in Michigan, almost 60 years on insulin. And the interesting thing, that she kept this as a secret. Nobody knew she had diabetes. A year after her passing, her grandchild announced that she suffered 60 years of diabetes and treated with the initial insulin from Dr. Banting. Another fascinating story is Teddy's story. He was from Connecticut. His uncle participated in Dr. Banting's lecture in December, and he urged his sister to travel with Teddy to Toronto to see Dr. Banting. Teddy was treated with the original extract like many other children and gained weight, and looked great. He wrote a beautiful letter to Dr. Benting. He said, Dr. Benting, I wish you could come to see me. I'm a fat boy now, and I feel fine. I can climb a tree. Margaret, his sister, would like to see you. Lots of love from Teddy Ryder. Teddy Ryder went on to become a librarian in Hartford, Connecticut. He had no serious complications from diabetes. He died in 1993 at age 76. At the time, he was the person treated the longest by insulin in the world. He actually attended a ceremony in 1991 uh, in University of Toronto depicting uh, the discovery. And it was his, his presence was big hit. Of course, the Nobel Prize followed. This is the fastest award given to a discovery to date. Dr. MacLeod and Dr. Banting was named in the Nobel and Dr. Best, uh, Charles Best was left alone. Dr. Banting was quite hurt about this. He wrote to Dr. Jocelyn, at any meeting or dinner, please read following stuff. I ascribe to best, equal share in discovery, stop. Hurt that he is not acknowledged by Nobel trustees, stop. We'll share with him, stop Benting. World needed insulin and world needed insulin fast. University of Toronto Connaught antitoxin laboratories began ramping up the insulin production, but they cannot keep up with the demand. Of course, Yankees came to rescue. Eli Lilly and Company was after Dr. Banting since 1921, since that lecture in New Haven, Connecticut. They were trying to recruit him, but he, 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 he didn't agree. University of Toronto came to an agreement with Eli Lilly for the mass production of insulin. So the insulin started to be commercialized by Lilly Company, which they still produce insulin to this state. It was a humongous task. The meat industry provided the animal pancreases in tons to get a pound of concentrated insulin crystals. And um, it was a large-scale operation, the grinding, the cooking. It was a big process, dissolving, digesting, trying to purify it as best as they can and get it to a bottle for patient care. The red bottle is a U40 insulin and the green, uh, the, the, the green bottle is a U80 insulin. In 1936, Fisher and Hagedorn added zinc protamine to insulin for prolonged action. And those are pictured here. Special syringes were introduced and you still had to boil it, and sharpen it, sharpen the needle, but posters put by Lily and Jocelyn depicting that a child can do it. The discovery of insulin opened doors in science, which led to discovering role of hormones, a lot of biomechanisms. Uh, and this pioneering word set the stage for furthering the science Sanger sequenced the insulin as the first human protein first the beta then the alpha chain and then the cross beautiful cross links the double sulfate sulfide bonds and he won a Nobel Prize in 1958 for the sequencing he later won a second Nobel Prize for sequencing the nucleic acid. And the discovery, again, led to other discoveries. In 1960, insulin bioassays developed, and that opened doors for endocrinology. The bioassay is used to detect many hormones. The Nobel Prize was awarded to Drs. Burson and Yalow. Dr. Yalow became the first woman who received Nobel Prize. In 1965, a tree structure of insulin is described by Dr. Dorothy Hodgkin after 35 years of relentless work against all type of Nobel laureates, mentors, telling her that she cannot do this. And she got a Nobel Prize. In 63, insulin was the first human protein to be synthesized chemically. In 78, it's the first human protein cloned and manufactured through biotechnology. 81, first human insulin derived from recombinant DNA technology. In 96, we started playing with the structure and creating analogs of insulin. The face of diabetes now is quite different. There are about half a billion people suffering from the condition. And the expectations or the projections are quite gruesome, that there will be a 51% increase by 2045. The type one diabetes is also on the rise. This color chart depicts the differences in incidence. Although U.S. doesn't have the highest incidence by population numbers, we have the highest number of cases under age 20 per year. The symptoms of diabetes did not change compared to 3,000 years ago. Patients still present with excessive thirst, frequent urination, weight loss, lack of energy, bedwetting, and in late stages, nausea, vomiting, dehydration, rapid cosmal breathing, signs of ketoacidosis and coma. European colleagues put out this poster because everybody is not lucky, like we are in Connecticut, that we are surrounded with beautiful, Pediatric network that detects these symptoms and alerts us for the emerging diabetes. The diagnosis of diabetes needs to meet one of the four following lab results. Either you need to have a fasting blood glucose of 126 milligram per deciliter or higher, Following an oral glucose tolerance test at 2nd hour, we should have a blood glucose greater than 200 mg per deciliter, or a random blood glucose with signs and symptoms of diabetes, as I described in the previous slide, of a sugar of greater than 200, or a hemoglobin A1C of 6.5% or higher. Today's insulin is quite different than the insulin sequenced by Dr. Sanger. You see this 51 beautiful amino acids coming together and making uh, insulin. Now today's insulins look quite different. Let's take a look closely. Let's imagine which insulin we know the most, I would say I would think most of you will say humalog because that's the first analog that was produced in 1996. so let's look at humalog humalog is the generic name for humalog is lis pro if you look closely on the beta chain number 28 and 29 amino acid is proline and lysine when you flip them over to lysine and proline hence the name lispro you create a breakage point that breakage point make insulin rapidly active and peak way faster than a regular insulin our european colleagues use the same breakage point to insert an aspartamine into proline number 28 on beta chain and main Novolog. So these insulins are not identical, but they are similar. There is another rapid acting insulin called Lysine, not known well, a gen- a commercial name is Apidra, similar idea. For longer acting insulins, we have a different design. So the most common known long-acting insulin is lantus. The generic name is glargine. So if you look at how they make glargine, they insert a glycine in number 21 in alpha chain and two arginine molecules at the end of beta chain, which makes the construct acidic. When you inject an acidic substance into a neutral pH of under the skin, it crystallizes and insulin gets absorbed from that crystal slowly and steadily for the next 18 to 24 hours. Pegulated insulins, the detemir and the glue are also revolutionary uh, constructs that it is difficult to chop these insulins when you inject in the bloodstream, so they last 18, 24, 36 hours. When you put them on a table form to look at their onset of action, peak of action, and the duration of action, you get this picture. And this is basically mostly for you a reference uh, in the slides that is available to you. If you look at them in a table form with all the brand names, again, I put this as a reference in in the slides. Why do we need all these designed insulins? Now, it is all to mimic what our physiologies do. In 1960s and 70s, um, they recruited medical students for free meals in exchange of blood samples for glucose, insulin, and glucagon. The study demonstrated the response to a carbohydrate meal. Basically, opened the door for us to mimic this for patients with diabetes. The graph that you are seeing on the screen is the insulin graph that depicts the insulin secretion for breakfast, lunch, and dinner if you only eat three meals. What we try to do in patients with diabetes is to inject a rapid acting insulin for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner to mimic that. In order to mimic the basal action of insulin, we also inject a long-acting insulin that lasts about 24 hours. And that's how we control blood sugars today. How to calculate those doses is a topic of a different lecture. Now, how we deliver the insulin has evolved over the years. We have now easy to use insulin pen devices, no longer boiling the syringe or sharpening the needle. The universal pen needle is as small as four millimeter. And the pain of insulin injection is the thing of the past. We also have pumps pump is a simple idea of a mechanical device pushing medication through a cannula into a catheter. So this is an example of a pump, current pump we are using, and you see it on a patient, that the pump pushes insulin through the tube under the skin into that indwelling catheter. Another idea, another uh, uh, pump, uh, similar idea, Pushing insulin through a catheter. We also have pumps without tubing. How does that work? We basically take a pod, a mechanical pump device, small enough to be attached to a body surface loaded with insulin and remote controlled by a personal device manager. It is important to know what happens to glucose when you inject insulin. Glucose meters over the years served for that purpose. They got smaller, they got smarter, and they became a phone attachment, and they got obsolete. Now they are replaced by continuous glucose monitors. These monitors go under the skin, and constantly read tissue sugar and report it to any smart device that you can connect them to. Another idea, smaller and smaller they get, they attach to the skin and they communicate with all sorts of smart devices, and they can be shared across the oceans through the cloud. The reason to monitor blood sugar is to find a way for the artificial intelligence to decide how much insulin the body will need. So, FDA approved the first automated system about five years ago. This system basically takes information from the sensor, processes it, it processes it, and decides on how much insulin the patient should get. It requires meals to be announced and carbohydrate amounts to be entered because it cannot keep up with that surge of a meal, but it controls the blood sugar beautifully otherwise. So if you look at a system, patient inserts the sensor, patient inserts a pump site and connects the pump to the sensor and the pump reads the tissue sugar and decides on insulin doses. A similar system with a different sensor. Patient inserts the sensor, patient inserts the pump site and connects the pump, the sensor, and then the pump decides how much insulin to deliver. With the exception of meals that needs to be announced into the system. The cost of insulin has been extraordinarily high over the past 10 years. The net revenue in 2019 for insulin sales sales were 20 billion. It's a designer insulin and it's costing a designer price. People in the diabetes community started a movement to do it yourself. This was mostly for technological advancement that they did not want to wait anymore. Hashtag, we are not waiting. But it came to insulin as well. People with scientific backgrounds also explored to produce insulin with a fraction of cost. This demand pushed lawmakers to pass bills to recognize and understand the rising cost of insulin, and growing demand, and problems with access. Colorado was the first state to pass an insulin price cap bill for $100, and Connecticut recently followed the suit. The House Bill 6003 was signed by Governor Lent Lamont, and in action right now uh, for just for insulin and the cap will go with any diabetes supplies as of January 1st next year. So what is next? Of course, the sky is the limit when you try to create new analogs. We want ultra short, short-acting insulins, We want faster insulins that will meet with uh, glucose needs, when the food is consumed, we have maybe ultra long acting insulins that the patient will inject only once a week or once a month. We also need smart insulin, which is under development. These nanoparticles activate themselves when the blood sugar is greater than 140 and deactivate themselves when the blood sugar is less than 70, glucose responsive insulin. We also need to direct insulin to liver, because the natural insulin that is produced, 50% of it uptaken by liver to to get the glucose homeostasis. So there is a work behind uh, liver-targeted insulin, HDVR. And of course, the delivery needs to improve. We have a bionic pancreas in production that takes insulin and glucagon and takes away the meal announcement by injecting quick, large doses of insulin and counters it with glucagon to be able to cover the meals without patient's input. The human factor of diabetes um, should not be forgotten. Dr. Osler, as the father of modern medicine, By the way, another Toronto physician once eloquently said, every patient you see is a lesson in much more than the malady from which he suffers. Despite all the advances in insulin therapy over the past century, the burden of day-to-day diabetes uh, management is not to be ignored and should be recognized. The nonstop demand, and relentless pursuit of perfect blood sugar leads to exhaustion, frustration, anger, and isolation. There is also a widening disparity in adapting the technology, and for some patients, and those patients are falling significantly behind, regardless of their insurance coverage. I also have a small favor to ask: not to define your patients with the condition by calling them diabetic, but rather patients with diabetes. Pictured here is a fond memory from Connecticut Diabetes Day Camp in 2019. I salute all in the audience who suffer or have a loved one who suffers from diabetes. It takes a village and comprehensive team to deliver care for diabetes the roots of our team were planted 40 years ago by my mentor and role model dr susan ratson i'm sure she is listening although she doesn't like zoom and we grew stronger over the years our diabetes team as well over a century worth of experience with strong dedication to our patients and families. I'm proud to say that seven members of our entire endocrine team have type one diabetes, four of whom were former patients. They are true inspiration to us all. Every year before COVID, we gathered around the blue circle at the entrance of our clinic and celebrated World Diabetes Day, Dr. Banting's birthday. Dr. Banting gave a gift to the entire world that opened floodgates of scientific development beyond his imagination over a century ago. In front of his London, Ontario home, there is a flame, flame of hope is awaiting to be extinguished with the discovery of the cure for diabetes thank you
0: thank you uh dr Demirci. that was absolutely spectacular it really was a, was a perfect grand rounds to be, to be given before thanksgiving uh i think you've shared share with us a message of hope and thanks uh in a in a truly scholar way, with great compassion, which characterizes you. So, thank you again. We have uh, time for questions. Uh, I have uh, we have a, a comment uh, for you, Dr. Demerci, from Dr. David Crow. Thank you, Dr. Demerci, for your partnership with the Connecticut Children's Care Network to improve the well-being of our share patients. I appreciate everything you have done to help us improve quality of care. That's from Dr. Crow.
2: Thank you, Dr. Crow.
0: So again, uh, we have uh, we have time for questions. Uh, uh, while while people uh, and Emily, uh, I have you on. Do you want to have a few no, remarks as well? Go ahead, Emily.
1: Yes. Yeah, so so, Jim, that was a phenomenal talk. You captured everything so beautifully. I guess I'll pose one question to you, which is, um, what do you envision in t- terms of a potential cure for diabetes?
2: Um, Like many others who invest so much in diabetes care, I stop giving a timeline for cure because I disappoint patients when I say, in 10 years, in 20 years, and the years pass by, we have such advancement in care, but still no cure. So the cure will look like this most likely. Imagine some stem cells Turn into insulin producing cells and injected into a pocket that is protected from the immune system and they can be renewed once every six months 12 months two years and they serve as pancreas under the skin in a pouch so this is actually coming soon and this will serve partially as a cure the true cure will come from the restoration studies which i participated 15 years ago the restoration in mice is possible dr doc melton cured mice from type 1 diabetes they can generate those cells in pancreas and turn them into insulin producing beta cells that is still not an acceptable approach for a manageable condition. However, the great work by Dr. David Weinstein, now followed by Dr. Reba and Lochner, opening doors for gene therapy for much rarer and deadly diseases will teach us how to apply those scientific advancements in changing cells in the pancreas to make insulin that will be the true cure thank you for your question Emily
0: and there's a question from dr. Leon Kamaitis um, thank you for an outstanding lecture what is the relationship between tissue and blood glucose blood glucose how fast do they track specifically in hypoglycemia
2: thank to dr. Kiman i truly appreciate our conversations in the past and you ask real good questions the tissue glucose corresponds with blood glucose about a 15-20 minute lag so the tissue glucose follows blood glucose with that lag we kind of use the analogy of the, the the wagons in a roller coaster the head wagon is the blood glucose the, the the last wagon is the tissue glucose. So it goes wherever the blood glucose goes with that lag. Now, to prevent misinformation from that lag, companies came up with arrows pointing which direction the head wagon is going. So the patient can make conscious decisions about where my blood glucose is going. Maybe the reading is one thing, but where it is going is another thing. So these these monitors take samples every five minutes and look at every sample for the rise or fall rate and report an arrow, double arrow down, double arrow uh, up, uh, side arrow, and each of them means something in the trend of sugar and can be used very, very closely for the management. The other nice thing about the sensors is that their error rate, because they are judged differently as a medical device compared to meters, their error rate, M-A-R-D, is about 9%. The best meter out there has an error rate of 12 to 15%. So we tell families now not to use meters to judge blood sugars unless your sensor is dead wrong, something is off at your sensor. So the sensor glucose is certainly replacing the blood glucose. Thank you for the question.
0: Jim, from uh, Dr. Richard Ratzons, uh, uh, spouse of Dr. Susan Ratson, the original Chase Endowed chair uh, holder. Uh, he asks, uh, were the early extracts uh, used also to treat DKA?
2: Yes, the early extracts certainly used to reverse DKA. At the time, the treatment was one daily injection. The goal was to keep the patient alive and it succeeded. Patients were treated. In parts of the world, we have a very small program and I, I like to say thanks to Dr. Nancy Dunbar And one of our nurses, Komalita Elliott, for their dedication in Haiti, Haiti. Uh, we have a small program there. In Haiti, the only available insulin is a 70-30 mix that we don't even want to consider using for anything. They use that mix to treat DKA. So, yes, any insulin can be used, may not be ideal, but can be used to reverse diabetic ketoacidosis.
0: From uh, Dr. Kroll, Uh, do you have some advice for primary care pediatricians on how they can support the transition of patients with diabetes from a pediatric endocrinologist to an adult endocrinologist? We find that for some of them, the transition is challenging and care can be compromised, especially with regard to hemoglobin A1C testing and urine protein screening.
2: Dr. Kroll, you, you and I, we had discussions over this and the transition is very, very hard. We often diagnose these children as toddlers. They stay with us for 18, 20 years of their life and they cannot let go. We actually, since I've been here, we extended our transition to 21, 22, beyond college type of a transition because after high school is a very difficult transition. And even after college, people struggle with that transition and then there are some that gets transitioned gets a first appointment with an adult endocrinologist and never follows so that is a very vulnerable age range between 20 and 30 and we know that they they ration their insulin they ration their care they deteriorate so there is a lot of work needs to be done for this and I wish the answer was simple but it's not but it is basically through communication strengthening the network around these patients and getting them the care they need.
0: There's one more question uh, from John Pitagoff. Dr. Pitagoff asks, can you discuss the comorbid issues of mental health and with children with diabetes?
2: Thank you Dr. Pitagoff. Dr. Pitagoff lives this by case example, that when the blood glucose levels of our patients elevate to a certain degree, uh, hemoglobin A1c levels of 13, 14, 15, or undetectably high, they cannot mentate. Their mental health suffers immensely. They tell this to us themselves, that they cannot concentrate, they cannot focus, they cannot handle their emotions. Similar things happen when their blood sugars are really low. We have stories after stories how patients felt when they had low blood sugars. One patient in front of me in a visit started to climb the walls saying, I'm the Spider-Man, and he had a very low blood sugar that day. So mental health suffers immensely with fluctuating blood sugars, especially with hyperglycemia.
0: Question from a uh, comment and question from Silva It uh, says, thank you so much, Dr. Demerchen, for your wonderful lecture and for your exceptional care of children with diabetes. How are people with type one diabetes affected by the current COVID pandemic? Are they at more risk than others for complications? Yeah, I knew this would have an infectious disease twist sooner or later, so. Yes. There you go, Dr. Demerchen. And there to.
2: is an infectious twist to it. Our numbers doubled, <clears throat> if not, uh, Went up 2.5 times with the diagnosis of diabetes during the COVID era. There is an association and a link of how COVID serves as a trigger for those who have the genetic predisposition to diabetes. This is not a proven uh, fact, but it is a very uh clear clinical observation the information is pouring from all centers of diabetes that there is a big surge now the initially care for the existing patients actually improved during COVID. they got isolated they got really scared thinking that type 1 diabetes is a huge risk and they retracted themselves Uh, and that helped their blood sugars, to to be honest with you. Our readmission, DKA readmission rates, stayed constant and even dropped a bit for existing patients, but our new patient DKA admissions skyrocketed. So COVID had multiple effects on the diabetes, existing diabetes community, and gave us a, a large new cohort of diabetes. Thank you for your question.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, I think we have no further questions at this time. We had uh, uh, well over a hundred participants for your grand rounds, uh, uh, truly exceptional. I think this will be one for the ages. It will be available for those of you who want to share with, uh, with patients um, or staff. It, it is recorded, uh, so it is available for you in a, in a podcast also with and without the slides. Uh, Dr. Demirci, thank you very much. Dr. Jermaine Lee, thank you very much for your leadership in this arena to the entire endocrinology team I just want to be absolutely I'm, I'm so grateful for everything you have done for your patients for the care it was a very difficult time you guys did not miss a single beat during the entire pandemic you switched very quickly from inpatient to telehealth visits and these monitors made it very possible for you to continue the care and keep everyone safe uh, for all of you online again I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving Uh, Next Tuesday, uh, we have the better half of the Salazar's Giving Grand Rounds uh, on the uh, cardio-oncology program, so please do join us. That's the Milton Markowitz Lecture, Uh, and then again, we'll see you then. Be safe during the holiday, uh, and take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing. Or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at connecticutchildrens.org/podcast/grand-rounds.